0: Thank you for joining the Captain Paul Watson Foundation podcast. I'm your host, Charlie, and today I am joined with Captain Lockie McLean. He is the Ship Operations and Campaigns Director for the Captain Paul Watson Foundation. Lockie, how are you?
1: Great. Uh, Charlie, thanks so much for uh, inviting me onto the podcast.
0: Oh, it's my pleasure. I've really been looking forward to speaking with you. Um, I wanted to ask the question that I guess I ask all the guests right out the gate is, what got you uh, started in, in wanting to protect marine life?
1: Uh, I come from a, a small Gulf island um, in the Salish Sea in, in British Columbia on the west coast of Canada. And uh, being close to the water, uh, I was lucky enough um, as a kid to be to be close to the water from a young age, and uh, I think that exposed me to a lot of sort of the tail end of the salmon fishing industry in British Columbia as a kid, uh, and I could I, and just seeing that whole industry collapsing uh, on on Canada's Pacific coast um, as it succumbed to decades of overfishing and mismanagement by uh, federal authorities uh, in Canada it got me thinking. I think you know, some maybe subconsciously as a kid, um, that maybe our government wasn't really um, on, top of, on top of these kind of things. And, uh, and at some point, um, you know, as a teenager, a young adult, I, I turned towards uh, environmental studies, um, ecology, and, and ended up studying uh, that in university later on.
0: So you you recently wrote an article about the herring fishery collapse in the Salish Sea. And I was wondering if you could fill in our listeners on what's going on with the herring fishery out there.
1: Well uh, Pacific herring used to span <clears throat> all the way from Hokkaido, Japan across the Pacific Ocean, uh, to British Columbia to the west coast of Alaska down to uh, as far as California. And uh, there used to be some very big runs of herring even into San Francisco Bay. Uh, however, uh, nowadays there are very few um, there are very few viable herring, uh, populations left in in the Pacific. And Japan was uh, unfortunately for Japan, their their herring population was um, basically rendered uh, at the turn of the last century to usher in Japan's industrial revolution. So herring was used as fertilizer for uh, a booming uh, agricultural industry, and uh, and and basically, you know, on an industrial scale, the fish the, the fish were wiped out there in Japan. In Canada, a similar thing happened, um, and uh, nowadays we are left with one you know—one out of the five herring fisheries on the west coast of Canada remain. And that one is, uh, just happens to be uh, in the Strait of Georgia from the, the northern Gulf Islands region, um, <clears throat> which has become sort of the barometer for, for the health of what's left of, of Canada's Pacific herring. So that happens to be where I'm from, a small island uh, called Hornby Island, on the West coast of uh, British Columbia.
0: So I I remember, I think from your article too, that when they are capturing the herring, they're not using the actual herring. They're uh, taking the eggs as a delicacy um, and discarding the rest or using, I should say using the rest uh, as salmon feed and and other uh, pet food and things like that. Is that that right?
1: Yes. um, so the primary goal of the fishery, <coughs> the herring fishery, it's uh, it's it's what's called a reduction fishery because uh, only 10% of the herring uh, is really worth anything, and so um, that's that, that component of the herring is is the egg sac or the roe, and uh, it is a delicacy in Japan, and, uh, and the roe is exported, and the remains of the the remains of the females, obviously only the females have the egg sacs, and all of the males. Uh, so the males are just a bi- basically bycatch hmm. in this in this uh, fishery. Um, so basically, 90 percent of the harvested biomass um, actually ends up not being for human consumption but for pet food uh, and salmon farm feed.:
0: Wow. so so what organisms in the Salish Sea are reliant on the herring? Are there larger fish, uh, seals? what kind of things are eating the herring?
1: The herring is the—it's uh, it, really the, um, the keystone species for uh, the entire uh, ecosystem on on Canada's west coast. So, from from salmon uh, to orca whales, <laughs> for example, the southern resident orcas uh, rely heavily on chinook salmon. Um, their diet is comprised of somewhere around eighty uh, percent chinook salmon, and in turn, the chinook salmon rely also. Uh, heavily on the on the herring. And that's even higher. That's around 80, 87 percent uh reliant on the herring for feed. So orcas without herring, um, they'll they'll die out, they'll go hungry.
2: Wow. And
1: we're talking about bird life, uh, you know, the 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 seals that come up from uh far and wide to to feast on the herring. It's really a feast. Uh when the herrings spawn in March every year on Canada's west coast, <laughs> it just attracts uh, sea life from hundreds, uh, if not almost thousands of miles away. Uh, we see uh, large migrations coming to the uh, coming to the west coast in order to feed on the herring. So it really is a it really is a uh, uh, an exciting time to be there and just and to see what's happening. Unfortunately, the fishery happens uh, right at spawning time. so it definitely puts a damper on uh, this amazing bio, you know this amazing, event that happens every year
0: is the canadian government doing anything to protect the herring or is the only way to protect the herring to to close down the herring fishery i mean what i guess what's being done to, to improve things or or is anything being done
1: well yeah that's that's an interesting one um, in in previous years um successive fisheries ministers have you know because of pressure from environmental groups they have uh, reduce reduced the quotas slightly. Um, however, there there hasn't been a moratorium, which which really um, at this point is 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 probably the last ditch effort, uh, which would which would allow for uh, some kind of recovery. Because um, as far as as far as the numbers show, um, every year the quotas are going down due to the fact that you know the biomass is going down. Um, and when do you get to that critical you know, moment. Can- the Canadian, it's a little bit different in the States, but in Canada, they've come up with this this um, buzzword called uh, the precautionary principle, which basically means, well, it's, if it's, you know, we're going to take these precautions just in case, uh, uh, you know, just in case we're not sure of the numbers in order to be able to uh, rebuild, you know, rebuild these stocks. However, uh, <laughs> however, the, the, the fisheries scientists that work for the government always figure that they're within that, within that, uh, quota. So the precautionary principle never ends up applying. Um, so yeah, a, a moratorium appears to be, and, and a lot of first nations uh, are certainly calling for, uh, a moratorium and have been for over, over a decade. Um, uh, there have been multiple, uh, leadership councils among the first nations and forums, uh, which have been calling for, calling for a moratorium. Um, also the herring traditionally has been, a um, an important food fish and ceremonial fish for uh, First Nations up and down the coast.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, hope, hopefully somebody does something, but I, I'm not going to hold my breath with the uh, Canadian government doing much to, uh, <laughs> I guess, uh, enact this this principle that they've uh, created. And it seems like they're skirting around every year.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, as I say, they, 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 DFO claims to have a precautionary approach uh, but only the, it's interesting that only the scientists within the fisheries ministry, you know, would agree with that. Uh, many many leading uh, fisheries experts such as Daniel Pauly and others, um, you know, are, are are in agreement that this this is a relentless fishery. Uh, it's a big industrial fishery. It's basically they've what they've done is they've they've retrofitted and repurposed uh, fishing fleets that used to fish for salmon. Mm. Uh, which are out of business because the salmon fisheries collapsed and so they're using these relatively large vessels that, that belong on uh, the high seas and they're bringing them into the Strait of Georgia into the Salish Sea, which is a small uh, landlocked uh, in, inland sea um, and they're and they're basically using those big industrial sized vessels uh, on the, on this small, uh, remaining fish population of herring, so it, it's it is a very relentless fishery. They go right to the spawning beaches uh, to get the fish.
0: Wow, wow. Well, let's uh, let's move on and, and transition to uh, you know more exciting news, uh, which is the new ship, the Jean Paul Dejoria II. Uh, tell tell me about the ship. What what makes the ship special, and, and what are you all having to do to to get the ship ready uh, for the upcoming campaigns?
1: Well it's been an exciting few months. Um, Captain Watson asked me uh, back in August or September to start um, looking for a potential vessel for uh, his new foundation and uh, that set off uh, sort of a a hunt, so to speak, um, to to find the right vessel, a vessel that could tick all the boxes and uh, fulfill uh, all the requirements that uh, that a campaign uh, with Captain Watson would require. um, And having been lucky enough to sail with him for numerous years. Um, I had a pretty good idea what we needed for a ship, and, uh, and and Captain Watson and I were on the on the same page about that. And so I set off looking uh, for the right vessel. And that that adventure took me to Iceland. It took me to England um, and a couple other places. And uh, we settled on a a really really good boat, which is basically um, purpose built for exactly what we do. Which is uh, she was built as a Scottish fisheries protection vessel and she was built for the cod wars which were uh these uh, series of three uh fisheries wars between iceland and and the uk uh in the 80s and uh or in the 70s and 80s <coughs> so the uh the vessel the vessel uh was built on the tail end of that uh but very much with with that purpose in mind of protecting britain's coast unfortunately britain lost the cod wars iceland extended its uh economic zone out to 200 miles and uh mm. <laughs> and uh and as did england actually. And so um in any case, uh the vessel has good speed. It's built for the North Sea, which means it's it's well built, it's strong. It was a government owned vessel, uh so well built, it's been well maintained. Um and uh and the nice thing is everything's in English which is handy on board when <laughs> when you're opening a <laughs> when you're opening a manual right. or you're you know looking for, looking for the shop manual on a particular engine, uh, having those already in English makes a big difference. We, we have purchased in the past vessels from Japan, uh, vessels from Scandinavia or other places, which, which definitely there's a steeper learning curve in the beginning. So we have now uh, here in Feb basically three months to get the ship ready uh, before we head to uh, New York to kick off the campaign. And then head to Iceland with Captain Watson on board. So it's going to be an exciting couple of months. We've got crew coming in uh, every every couple of days a new crew member shows up um, and we're starting to uh, tackle some of the big jobs that we need to get done in order to get the ship ready for for the upcoming campaign this summer.
0: Well, what, when and so what are some of those uh, those big jobs that you just mentioned that the, the hurdles I guess that you gotta jump over to get ready and and to have the ship ready for campaign?
1: Well uh, it, uh on a ship you got to keep the water out and uh, you got to keep the engines running right <laughs> so those are two those are the two important things uh, but obviously uh, it's a little t- more more intricate than that but we we are doing an engine overhaul for example over the next few weeks uh, we'll be sounding uh, the thickness of the hull uh, throughout throughout uh, the uh, the dry dock period which is coming up in March uh, so the ship will get a very thorough. Uh, inspection to make sure she's safe seaworthy and up for the task of uh what uh what captain watson's got planned for her in in, uh, in summer
0: okay so so this ship i guess how does this ship compare to some of the other ships that you've been aboard is it is it bigger is it is it faster or you know about the same
1: well um she she's sort of the successor to the westra which uh when uh, Captain Watson had her was renamed the Steve Irwin. Oh. And, uh, and, and in many ways she's uh, the, the next generation of that, of that vessel. So um, the Steve Irwin having been, been built in the 70s, this vessel was built in the 80s. Um, some of the technology is similar. Uh, in other ways, the boat is is mo- much more modern. Um, and so there are, but there are hints. you know it's a British vessel. It's a Scottish fisheries vessel, just like the Steve Irwin was. Um, so having spent years on the Steve Irwin myself and, and, uh, been lucky enough to be first mate on that boat and then, and then later captain, um, it it was, there was a familiar feeling,
2: um,
1: Mm. coming onto this ship the first time because everything down to the color of the hallways, um, you know, the, some of the controls on the bridge, uh, some of the, some of the appointments on board, um, were very similar and I could tell that, okay, you know, in this case, some of the suppliers were the same, etc. So there's a familiar, familiar feel to the ship. Um, for those people who know the Steve Irwin, there's a, there's definitely some similarities.
0: So, so we get quite a bit of, uh, well, many emails come in, uh, people around the world looking to volunteer people that are interested in being on the ship and joining the captain Paul Watson foundation crew. So what, what, what kind of things would you advise someone who's interested in joining the crew? Um, is there anything that they should be thinking about ahead of time? Uh, Can you give them an idea of what a typical day in the life would be of a crew member that's on, on a campaign?
1: Well, um, we, we survive on, on volunteers, uh, being on this ship, um, with just a few people on board, we, we wouldn't be able to get much done. It's once we have the numbers, once we have the volunteers on board, once we have uh, a good strong crew that we can start really uh, targeting all the, all the tasks that we have to do in order to go to sea. So um, if a volunteer is coming and they have not been to sea before, or they haven't experienced uh, being on a ship, then it's always good to, you know, if they have the time, it's always good to take a, uh, you know, a marine safety course, or, or that sort of thing, just to have some, you know, familiarization with what it's like being on the ship, what what to expect. Uh, but we've had people who've got zero experience, and they turn out really well. Also, um, I think the courage is there. We hear Captain Watson all the time <laughs> talking about uh, how the, one of the most important attributes is is having passion and really wanting to be here. And and I would agree, uh, I would concur with that. Over, you know, I say over twenty years of of doing this kind of stuff, uh, with captain Watson. Uh, it's definitely the people that really want to be here, uh, that, that get the most out of it and that do well.
2: Yeah.
0: Uh, no, absolutely. That, that makes a lot of sense. Um, what, let us assume that, that someone's joined and they are, you know, they're on campaign. W- what is a, a typical day like for them? They, they, they get out of their bunk and let's say the, the whaling vessel is of however many nautical miles away. What What's a typical day like for someone on the ship?
1: Well, once once we're at sea, we're on this sort of twenty four hour twilight zone of um, you know sleeping four hours, waking up again. Where we become we become a machine. The whole ship uh, turns into a a, a well oiled uh, machine within within just days of leaving port. You know, we get into a groove. I would say, and um, and so everyone's got a function. Everyone has responsibilities. People have tasks that they have to do every day, uh, or on every watch that they do. And typically, people will do a four-hour watch, <clears throat> then they'll get eight hours rest, and they're back on a four-hour watch again. So you, you do end up you do end up really focusing on on your tasks and what what is required of you uh, when you're on board. So there there's not a whole lot of um, wondering what you're going to do. It's very, it's very much um, tasked out from from the get go. So everyone's got a everyone's got a list of chores for sure and a list of responsibilities. And uh, I would say a typical day <laughs> at sea is, uh, let's say, for a bridge officer, is doing your watch, plotting your courses, keeping you know keeping obviously an eye on on vessel traffic, getting you know getting the ship where it needs to go. Um, for an engineer, it's different. They go down. They're doing their rounds. They're checking the machinery. Making sure that the ship's uh, equipment is, is running safely, and for a deckhand, <laughs> there might be a variety of things that they do. Uh, they might be working on deck, uh, working on some of the uh, auxiliary machinery out on the uh, on the deck. They might be securing something if the weather's uh, deteriorating. They might be lashing down some equipment on the deck. But uh, effectively, <laughs> it works in a it works in a way where uh, the main focus becomes uh, common between all crew members. And we all focus in on the goal of of, uh, keeping the ship on its mission. So it's a a great feeling when everything comes together.
0: Yeah. And and I wanted to ask you, because, you know, you all are out at sea for such a long time. And then, you know, for instance, when you were in the Southern Ocean, uh, chasing down the Nishinmaru, or in this instance, uh, going to Iceland to confront uh, the whalers there, what are, what are the emotions like when you've been out at sea for that long and then there's the ship you know there there is the illegal fishing vessel or or there's the whaling ship that's trying to kill whales what what is does that what is that like i guess to to see that on the open sea with you
1: yeah i would say i would say it's a relief because uh we do spend you know in the southern ocean campaigns we we would spend sometimes weeks, uh, tracking these guys down. We would spend weeks, uh, trying to hone in on their position, sometimes thinking we're very close and then only to find out that there's an ice flow or some piece of weather that's preventing us from closing in on our, on our target. Uh, so when we finally do catch up to the whaling fleet and pinpoint them, uh, you know, it, it definitely is a, is a feeling of relief that, uh, you know, finally we've caught up to these guys and we know that now the fun, a, now the fun starts and B, they won't be able to whale anymore now that we're here. So that, it's a feeling of relief and one of excitement at the same time. Um, I remember captain Watson was on the uh, Steve Irwin one year and I was on the Brigitte Bardot. And my job was to sort of speed ahead of the rest of the ships, ahead of the ball Barker, ahead of the Steve Irwin. And, um, and locate uh, the Nishin Maru, and uh, and it took us a while. Um, the, the the fleet was far from our departure point that year, and uh, they they'd been covering some miles. It was taking us a while to catch up. We finally caught up with them, uh, and I remember getting a phone call the night before on the satellite phone, with Captain Watson saying, "So, you know." We really need to find these guys. And and I just, I could feel it that we were close, but
2: hmm.
1: um, you know, you never know how close you are. Right. And it turns out the next morning uh, we, we saw a blip on the radar and uh, and there was the Nishin Maru. And as soon as we were on them, uh, because of the Brigitte Bardot, the way the boat was built out of uh, fiberglass, uh, the Nishin Maru headed straight for the ice to try to, to lose us down there.
0: Wow, wow. So 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 you found them. You were able to locate them, and then Captain Watson was able to bring in the the bigger ships.
1: Yeah, the uh, the other vessels caught up within uh, twenty four to forty eight hours uh, uh-huh. once once we once we were on them, and uh, there was quite a skirmish through through the ice to uh, to keep on them. Wow, to keep on
0: to the mission, Maru. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, well, okay, so with the upcoming campaign, Piacon, um, you know trying to track down the the Icelandic uh, whalers, uh, what are some of the, the the challenges, I guess, that you might foresee in your role uh, on the ship or just in general uh, in in making that a successful campaign? Well, uh,
1: in some ways, it's very similar to a Southern Ocean campaign. And uh, in, in some ways, it's very different. And I might, you know, I might let Paul uh, speak to this a little more. He's uh, he's leading the campaign this year, uh, and he'll be on board, which is super exciting. Um, some of my best uh, times at sea were as Paul's first mate on the Steve Irwin and being able to sail with him <clears throat> down to Antarctica. So I'm I'm very much looking forward to this again, uh, and uh, having him on board is going to be a great a great. Uh, a great boost for our for our strategy and for our campaign paul's always been a fantastic strategist out there um, it's been i've definitely learned a lot from him over the years uh, with his with his way of thinking about things when we're at sea um, but regarding iceland well japan's got a mothership so um, when we're down in antarctica the goal is always to prevent the harpoon ships a from whaling but B, from transferring whales to the mothership. And in this situation, there's no mothership in Iceland. They're they're effectively uh, whaling coastally
2: mm.
1: within a couple hundred miles of their fjord where the whale processing plant is located. So in some senses, we have a, an easier destination. We're not, it's not a needle in a haystack somewhere across the Antarctic ice shelf. It's, uh, at least we have the return point or the, the yeah. port of the port of the home port is a known entity right. or a known quantity. So that, that aspect may facilitate some parts of the campaign. However, in other, in other aspects uh, that will also possibly contribute to hampering our efforts due to the fact that that's, you know, very close to Reykjavik. It's also where the majority of Iceland's, Coast Guard and <laughs> naval vessels are located.
0: Okay, all right. So yeah, so it'll it should be interesting to say the least.
1: Yeah, I can't I can't predict how the campaign will turn out, but I'm certainly very excited about it, and uh, I'm very much looking forward to it.
0: Lockie, what are some of the issues in going to Iceland to protect the whales up there?
1: One of the issues um, that come up when when discussing Iceland and And the whaling issue there um, are, you know, people I get asked often, oh, well, you know, you guys are taking the law into your own hands or you're um, going up there as, you know, cowboys or something like this. But the fact is, uh, there are so many laws and so many acts and so many treaties that actually protect uh, whales globally. You know, first of all, within certain countries, for example, um, you know, in the USA we have the Marine Mammal Protection Act, the Endangered Species Act. Uh, we have numerous other amendments, uh, which also protect uh, marine mammals <coughs> in the U.S. and um, in, including um, amendments that, you know, that kick kick off sanctions on nations who violate um, conservation laws internationally. So there are there are there are a lot of laws out there that protect uh, species and whales in particular, and also migratory species. Um, and then we get into some of the European laws, like the Convention on Migratory Species. But internationally, um, obviously we have the International Whaling Convention, <coughs> which um, since 1986 has implemented an indefinite ban on commercial whaling, which the ban is still still in effect. As we know, Japan, um, Hasn't hasn't honored the ban, but um, <laughs> an interesting thing, which which hits close to home for me personally with the Iceland campaign, is uh, in relation to uh, CITES and and CITES um, is the Convention on the International Trade in Endangered Species, and and that gets interesting because for whatever argument Iceland has for their whaling, which I don't think there are any good ones. Um, (laughs) there's a big there's a big there's a big elephant in the room here which is the fact that regarding Iceland none of the fin whale meat uh, harvested, hunted in Iceland uh, this summer the 160 odd whales that Iceland plans on hunting, none of that will remain in Iceland all of that all of that whale meat is already uh, earmarked to be shipped and exported to Japan. Wow! So now we get into, you know, trading in, trading in species that are uh, vulnerable, threatened, endangered, etc. <clears throat> and several European ports over the years have caught on to um, this this shipment. You know, this yearly fin whale shipment. of of fin whale, basically what we're talking about is frozen fin whale meat in cardboard boxes being shipped from Iceland all the way to Japan halfway around the world and uh, these shipments have been refused in the past right? so ports like Rotterdam and European ports and even certain African ports South Africa for example uh, these shipments have been um, banned from entering the port so it's quite interesting to what lengths um, Iceland and Japan are willing to go to to secure and guarantee that these shipments make it to Japan. For example, uh, back in 2015, on board the Sam Simon, I followed uh, a vessel called the Winter Bay, which was um, shipping. It was carrying about 1,500 tons or 1,700 tons of fin whale meat uh, from Reykjavik. All the way to Japan, and the way, to, the way they were skirting uh, all these various ports was they they basically plied a route above the Northeast Passage, so above Russia, above the Arctic Circle, uh, over the top of the world to get uh, this whale meat uh, from basically the Atlantic down the Be- you know over the top of Russia down the Bering Straits uh, and down into Japan. So quite a
2: yeah. <laughs> quite
1: a yeah quite an amazing route to 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 get this whale meat over there. Um, and, and then you start realizing how, how absurd humanity is, you know, that we are <laughs> diminishing this, we are diminishing this fascinating intelligent species of whale and burning all this fuel to ship these poor things, you know, to ship this whale meat from Iceland all the way to Japan, over the Arctic. Not only that, they have to be escorted by russian nuclear icebreakers to get through you know all the way through to japan so if you think about the just the absurdity and how insane it all is um, it really <laughs> it really kind of highlights humans as a, you know humans as a species
0: well and that was i was going to that was my follow up question you already answered it was how are they getting through the ice and and Part of my concern was, and I'm may, maybe at some point in the future because of global warming, where they won't need the icebreakers, but uh, apparently they still do. So they're hiring these these Russian icebreakers to clear a path for them so that they can take this extraordinary route to get to Japan.
1: Charlie, uh, what you have up there is a yeah the north you know the, basically what they're calling it the Northeast Passage or the North Sea route. And and how or the northern sea route should I say, and um, the way Russia controls access up into that path, they, they consider it inland waters. So they consider that route part of their territorial you know waters. Unlike the Northwest Passage. So, for example, if you're doing the Northwest Passage, uh, that's considered international waters. You don't you know you're not being tailed by, say, Canada Coast Guard or something like that up there necessarily. However. Um, in Russia, they take a different uh, angle, and, and they consider that very much uh, by permission only going through there. Wow. So, uh, vessels require permission. They require uh, a pass to go through there. And uh, along with that pass comes the guarantee that there will be maybe one or two uh, nuclear icebreakers at at the disposal of the vessels that are crossing the cha- You know that area, which is you know several thousand miles long, by the way. Yeah. Um, and and those Russian icebreakers are up there to clear the way and <clears throat> make sure that commerce and traffic can can continue uh, unimpeded.
0: Wow. Well, and so what I've heard too is that Japan has gone to great lengths to try to keep. Uh, you know, whale products, whale meat, uh, in the public eye, because the, the demand for it amongst the Japanese people has been dwindling. And so, so usually I would say, or I would think that the economics of things is what is causing the destruction of the fin whale. But When I hear that the demand for the whale meat is going down in Japan, but they're going to all these lengths and spending all this money to kill fin whales and then take them through this extraordinary route, it seems like there's more at play than just making a profit. Now, maybe from the Icelandic point of view, it could be just about profit, but there's always sort of been this don't tell us what to do sort of attitude amongst uh, certain whaling nations. So is that, I I guess what I'm asking is, is that sort of your sense of things? Is that Japan, Iceland, Norway, the Faroe Islands, they don't want to be told stop, stop hurting whales, stop killing whales, or, you know, is that, I guess, the impetus for this mostly, or is there an economic uh, reason for them to keep doing it?
1: On the Icelandic front, I, it to me is it just points also to this sort of insanity of, of humanity. For example, you know, Iceland has become one of the premier whale watching uh, countries in the world. People fly to Iceland from all over the planet to go whale watching, and along with whale watching comes all kinds of laws, right? Like it's unlawful to approach a whale within a certain number of feet. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, you're not allowed to harass whales. Obviously, these boats go out there and they can't approach the whale, and then leaving from the same port are these harpoon <laughs> ships, which are uh, annihilating uh, the very same whales that the whale watchers are going out to sea. So uh, there again is this um, crazy uh, contrast uh, showing how insane uh, we are as a, as a, as a, as a race of beings. I mean, I think if, you know, if a future civilization ever comes to earth and sees what kind of shenanigans we were up to, they're going to say, well, no wonder these guys were wiped out. They, they were completely crazy, you know, yeah. but, uh, uh, so, so regarding the Iceland thing, look, um, uh, Hvalor, which is this, uh, the, you know, this company, the company that, uh, Christian Lawson owns, um, was started by his father. It's very much a one man band. Um, he he runs this company that his dad started. He has a processing plant. Um, he's obviously cozy with the um, fisheries directorate or the fisheries minister. He's a wealthy man. He knows the right people, mm. um, and and he has one customer, which is, um, you know, Japan. And Japan are trying desperately to uh, popularize uh, the whale meat again with the younger generations. Uh, the latest thing is. You know, the whale meat is now being uh, packaged up and sold in vending machines. I heard that. That's the new, that is the new. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> and Japan is, you know, the Japanese are really good at selling things in vending machines. You know, they'll sell panties in vending machines or, <laughs> you know, and a host of other strange things that you wouldn't expect right. come out of a vending machine. So um, they are trying desperately to make the product more appealing. As you know, it's been in school lunches. They've tried to, you know, roll out, sort of government programs to sell the whale meat uh, to make it you know to, to ba- basically get younger generations of people used to the taste again um, but it is a dying industry uh, and and once these older you know I'm hopeful that once these older uh, you know I, I call it a, a sort of an old boys club these guys that own the the whaling company in in Japan as well as you know lofson in Iceland these are these are this it's a club and uh, hopefully they'll hopefully hopefully eventually economically it won't make any sense anymore uh but having said that japan is investing in a new um a new mothership a new whale processing factory ship uh so we have to keep going out there um just when we think that we've won the war in the southern ocean uh, japan comes out with a new factory ship due out next year so um i'm excited that we'll be able to be out there for the whales again um certainly if the if the if the whalers decide to go back to the Southern Ocean, um, I know that this vessel will uh, will definitely will be definitely be slated to to head down there as well.
0: Yeah, well, and you know, hearing you say that, the insanity of humanity uh, brings to mind uh, an article that I was reading. And you know, keep in mind the, the fin whale is the second largest whale out there, so we're talking about a huge animal and i read in this article that uh they use these grenade harpoons to kill them and sometimes uh many times the first harpoon doesn't do the trick and so i think there was one whale that was drugged back into port that had four grenade harpoons in its body and to- and to your point i think whale watching tourists were taking pictures of this poor whale uh being drugged bra- back to the processing plant I and I guess the other thing I think the article mentioned was that it took um, I want to say about a half an hour or longer for this whale to perish. I can't imagine the brutality of of that operation uh, and and watching this poor creature suffer in that way for that long. Um, and I can imagine the people on the on the harpooning ship, you know, you know just fumbling around with more harpoons trying to, you know, figure out how to, um, kill the whale. I mean, just the the imagery of that drives me crazy and and saddens me to no end, but yeah, it's not, it's not an efficient operation, I guess, is what I'm getting at. I mean, these, these animals are suffering in the process of, uh, you know, these people trying to kill them.
1: Well, I think, um, as you say, the, the fin whale is, is, um, only second to the blue whale, but in, I think it was 2018 where, you know, the Icelandic whalers were accused of, um, of, uh, slaughtering a blue whale. Mm.
2: Um,
1: because the two, the two species are, you know, the two species of whale are so closely, uh, they resemble each other so closely. Mm. Um, and, uh, it is, it a, it's a big animal and it's the biggest animal that's ever lived on the, on the face of the earth. Yep. Um, and we're a modern intelligent species yet, um, for some reason, not by need, you know, it's not like we, you know, it's not like in Iceland they need to eat fin whale meat. Um, I was in Reykjavik in September. It's a perfectly modern society. (laughs) And, uh, and the people there don't seem to be into it. You know, they're not like rushing to the, uh, you know, burger joint to have a fin whale burger. Like nobody eats it over there. Yeah. And so, you know, it's, it's just, it, again, it just shows, how out of touch with the planet we are to be still in 2023? You know, as you say, shooting these beautiful, magnificent creatures uh, with a, an explosive tip harpoon um, just for business, basically just just to just to chop them up and freeze them, flash freeze them, put them in a cardboard box, ship them in a refrigerated container uh, to Japan, so that hopefully, you know, somebody will buy a little piece of it out of a vending machine. I mean, it's just crazy. It yeah. is just, it is really insane. So uh, I'm excited that, um, you know, Paul's regrouped uh, and and that we're able to go out this summer on board the Jean-Paul de Joria 2. Uh, the ship is coming together nicely. The crew is all gelling nicely. We're starting to get some really uh, f- nice new volunteers that have that have uh, decided to come and join and uh, and put their energy into the ship and make the ship, uh, make the ship a weapon as one of my former crewmates uh, sang a song called turning the ship into a weapon again. And that's really what we do. We put this, we basically fine tune these vessels uh, in to, for one aim and one purpose. And that's to, to go out there and stop these whalers. So it's it's really great to be back to our roots and back to a, a very focused, uh, singular mission again. And I'm, I'm really, really grateful to be here um, and that Paul asked me to come back and, and help them out with this uh, with this upcoming mission. Yeah.
0: Well, and, and look, there is a void uh, that was created, um, and and a need for direct action. And the the work that you're doing, the work that Paul does, fills that void. Uh, as you put, you know, earlier, there are numerous laws and numerous regulations that should prevent uh, these countries from slaughtering whales. But none of the governments are willing to uphold any of these laws and regulations. So the burden falls on individuals like yourself and like Paul that are willing to get on a ship and do something about it. So from that standpoint, Lockie, I can't thank you enough for what you're doing. And, uh, you know, I'm sure all of our listeners are wishing you and Paul and and the crew the best of luck uh, this this year and, and for future campaigns as well.
1: Charlie, thanks so much again. And um, yeah, if anyone's interested in crewing, uh, there is a uh, there is a uh, tab on the Captain Paul Watson website that leads to the um, to the volunteering to the volunteering page. Uh, we are getting crew applications, which is fantastic, and we're uh, we're seeing new crew arrive, which is um, which is just wonderful. I'm thrilled at the at the you know the passion that some of these young kids have. Some some of the some of the crew coming are. 18, 19. Um, and it's just, it's just really, um, heartwarming to see that there's still all that, that all that passion is still out there. Um, you know, we're so caught up in phones and social media. Uh, it's easy just to sort of watch, watch life go by, but, uh, uh, it's wonderful when people really, um, call, you know, they, they, (laughs) they take the call to, uh, to planetary duty and they, and the report for duty, and it's wonder, its just great. And we couldn't do it without all the supporters and all the volunteers. So, um, thanks for having me on the show, and uh, hopefully we'll speak again. If not, uh, before campaign, hopefully during the campaign.
0: So, I, I have one one last uh, question for you, and and this question is sort of a general question. As uh, you know, I, I've been on uh, vessels uh, that have always been very close to shore. I've never been on a large uh, vessel and. I always imagine that if I ever got the opportunity to do that, I would be, you know, I would be hung over the side of the ship, uh, just staring at the ocean, waiting for something crazy to pop up, whether it's a, a, a beaked whale or a, a giant squid that happened to float to the surface. Just, you know, there's all that wonder and, and magic about what's beneath you. So, in all your uh time at sea have you ever had i guess a magical moment uh with some kind of organ i mean it might not even be an animal it could be a sunset i don't know but is there anything that that stands out to you being out there in the open ocean all by yourself
1: yeah i can think of a few but um maybe (laughs) maybe i can give you one or two for sure okay uh I was I was sailing across the Indian Ocean uh, one time, and this this was just on a, on a sailing vessel, and had uh, been at sea for some time, and sailing across the Indian Ocean west to east, and I was about thirty or forty miles, sort of west southwest of Sumatra. And I was sort of aiming for the for the northern tip of Sumatra, and um, it was just just morning. You know, the sun was just coming up. Uh, My sailboat was on autopilot. I think things were very quiet out on deck. And um, it was just, you know, there's sort of this pink sky. And just as I came out of the hatch to look, you know, just as I came out of the sailboat, out of the companionway to look out at sea and see what was going on, look out to see this uh, cy whale, big, Mm. big whale just breached straight out of the water. Um, maybe about, I don't know, less than half a mile in front of me, you know, it must've been maybe a quarter of a mile or something in front of me, but I saw it really clearly. Um, and, uh, and then I realized that there must've been some feed around there because this kept happening over the course of the next, over the course of the next five or 10 minutes. It happened multiple times. Um, and I, I guess they were, these whales were, were breaching because there was some feed around some current must've, you know, a current must've. And brought this feed to the surface yeah um and and i could have just been still down below and i would have missed the whole thing yeah because the whole thing was over the whole thing was over within five or ten minutes but i just happened to come out on deck at that very instant and and witness this beautiful yeah this beautiful thing at sunrise so that was, that was a magical moment for sure
0: oh <laughs> quite i mean side whales are are big <laughs> those are those are big whales uh that's, that's incredible. I mean, I can't imagine what that would be like to see one breach. Um, cause we, you know, we, I've seen the humpbacks breach, uh, and that's impressive in its own right. I mean, you can see them from miles away, making their big cannonball splashes into the water, but a sigh whale, I mean, wow, that's, that's awesome. Yeah, no, it's always,
1: it's always special when you're, when you, when you're lucky enough to to see something uh, magical like that at sea Um, on the Brigitte Bardot a a few times we saw humpbacks in Antarctica and um, they would actually, they would actually sometimes swim right under the pontoons of the Brigitte Bardot. We actually came within, you Mm. know, obviously we didn't, we didn't mean to, but we came within, you know, 20, 30 yards of a humpback that was actually uh, swimming alongside us and extended its fin out towards the, the outer pontoon on the Brigitte Bardot and, wow. and didn't touch it but it came it came very close to touching it another one of those I don't know one of those moments where you're just you're just speechless
0: yeah yeah for sure that to me you know that's the thing is that the only way to have moments like that is to be out at sea and to be I mean you know you, months out at sea you know and you get you get a few of those um so that's, that's incredible. That's awesome. Well, so, so what I'll do instead of, you know, cause I know you have many more, so, but I'll, I'll save some because I, I do want to, uh, speak with you down the road as we get closer to campaign. Um, so Lockie, I, I want to thank you for joining me today. Uh, it's been great speaking with you. And like I said, uh, hopefully we'll get to talk, uh, down the road as we get closer to, uh, operation Piacon.
1: Charlie, thank you for thank you for calling me down here in beautiful uh, Hull, England, in the middle of winter on the ship, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and having a chat from all the way there in in Hawaii. I appreciate it. It's been lovely speaking with you.
0: Yeah, it's been great speaking to you too, Lockie. All right, well, I'll leave you at that because I know you're very busy and I know you got a lot going on. So thanks again.
1: Cheers, Charlie. Okay, take care.
0: All right, you too. Bye, Lockie. Bye bye. I want to thank Lockie for joining me today. It was a pleasure speaking with him and I'm really looking forward to talking to him in the future. And hopefully we do get to talk to him when he is on an actual campaign and we can get some up to the minute uh, information about what's going on in the fight to protect the fin whales off the shores of Iceland. I wanted to mention to everybody that today, February 19th, is World Whale Day, and um, we have a very special campaign uh, that we're, we're running in the hopes of uh, getting some more donations to help protect the whales. This um, campaign is on our website. So if you go to paulwatsonfoundation.org, you will see uh, a banner that pops up. It says, Fundraise for the Ocean. And then you'll see a little button that says, Start Yours Now. So if you click on that button, start yours now, it will take you to another page uh, where the title says Become a Force Multiplier for the Ocean. And really the idea behind this is that you can set up a page that you can then share with your friends and family, people that also care about the ocean, and you can see the results of your fundraising efforts. So if you uh, land on this next page, you'll see a button at the very top. It says, I want to fundraise for this. Uh, There's also another button at the bottom that says, I want to fundraise for this. The third way uh, to to do that is if you text OCEAN to 801-801, it will take you to the next page. And so on the next page, uh, you'll have to put in your, your name and email And then that allows you then to create a page. And once you create a page, you're able to share it and uh, hopefully um, get some donations, which will help uh, Captain Paul and Lockie uh, save whales uh, up in Iceland and and other places as the year goes on. So I wanted to mention this. If you're listening to this podcast uh, way in the future, it might not still be relevant, but. Uh, here February 19th of 2023 if you are listening to this please do go to our website and please do become a force multiplier. Uh, Every little bit helps. Uh, We need a lot of provisions. We need a lot of supplies to to get out on the water and to confront the whalers on the high seas. Today I got the chance to go snorkeling uh, here in Hawaii And I got to hear a mother and calf humpback whale talking to each other underwater. It was really magical and it was really special. And it's moments like that, that I really do cherish because a lot of times in this podcast, we end up talking about death. We end up talking about our, our oceans dying and what's all going wrong. But when you get to have an experience like that, uh, like I did today, it's really magical. I mean, the whales are really far away. I, I couldn't see them, but I can hear them. And when you hear the, the calf, uh, talking and I'm assuming it, it was the calf, uh, just because of the different frequency of, of the voice, but it's really special. I mean, later, far off in the distance, we could see the the mom and the, and the calf, uh, at the surface and that was special, but it is really Really amazing to hear them uh speaking to each other. It's otherworldly um that same day um saw some manta rays, uh, a white tip, reef shark, and a spotted eagle ray. so it really doesn't get much better than that uh when you're when you're in the ocean. but I did just want to highlight that um I think I wanted to share that good news with everybody just because. A lot of times the news that I end up having to share is, uh, I don't know, it's, it, it's rather depressing. But uh, there are wonderful experiences to be had out in the ocean. And so I hope that if you're able to, uh, you're able to get out there and experience that too. So anyway, I wanted to mention that to everybody just because, I don't know, it was, it was really magical today. And it, it really reinforces the need to protect these animals all over the world. I also wanted to mention that today's episode is brought to you by Kulpea Palasi. Thanks so much. If the oceans die, we die.